Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to this week's episode of Shankman on Money. Hope everybody had a wonderful July 4th, which is one of my favorite holidays. In the spirit of July 4th, my talking points are related to the holiday with a personal finance twist. As always, I'll spend the other half of my episode answering listener questions. With that, let's jump into this week's talking points. So as I just mentioned, July 4th is one of my favorite holidays of the year. I celebrate the day with fervor. After a large slice of apple pie for breakfast, I don my American flag hat, shirt, bathing suit, and flip-flops and head to the beach. In the afternoon, I go to Mincha, listen to the Doth, and sip an American beer as I barbecue for dinner and eagerly wait to watch the fireworks. This celebratory spirit is not only because it's my brother Dovi's birthday, happy birthday, Dovi, it's because I'm proud to be an American. The blessing of living in this country has been instilled in me since I was young. I remember my grandparents telling me how much they loved the United States. My European grandparents arrived from war-torn Europe, where most of their family members had perished, and were so grateful for a place where they could openly express their Jewishness and raise a family with Torah values. My American-born grandparents, whose immigrants' parents fled from pogroms in Russia, grew up with little money and few material possessions. With hard work and perseverance, they built a business, gave generously to Jewish causes, and took unbelievable pride in their very American rags-to-riches story. The blessing of living in the U.S. comes in many different forms, one of it, which is the privilege of being an American-based investor. On this July 4th, I thought it would be fitting to highlight just a few reasons why it is so wonderful to be an investor based in the United States. First is when it comes to plain vanilla banking. There are literally thousands of banks in the United States. This competition promotes good service, low fees, and various innovative products. Opening an account is effortless. The last time I opened a checking account, they did it in five minutes from the couch while watching Netflix and my PJs. If you don't appreciate the seamlessness of our banking system, just try opening a checking account in Israel. Investments. There are a myriad of investment options available to investors. You can easily buy individual stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, closed-end funds. Even more exotic and esoteric investments can also be purchased with relative ease. Optionality. Investors have options for how they want to handle their investment business. There are platforms catered to do-it-yourself investors, and there are many wealth management firms for those who prefer to work with a financial advisor. There are also options for how one prefers to work with an advisor. Investors can choose someone who charges an hourly rate for a quick consultation, pay a project-based rate for consulting on specific area financial planning, or opt for white glove service, including ongoing personal financial advice and plan implementation from an advisor who charges a percentage of assets under management. The only model investors should avoid are those where the advisor gets compensated on commission by exclusively selling proprietary products from the firm which employs them. However, if an investor wants to go down that route, in the U.S., you have the freedom to choose that business model as well. Democratize investment landscape. One of the beauties 
of the investment landscape in the United States is that both the rich and poor can access the best investment options with ease. A company's janitor and CEO can both invest in the same 401k plan with all the same investment options. Over years of disciplined investing, even a modest amount of funds can grow to a substantial nest egg. The next is low costs. The fees to buy and sell investments are negligible. Some brokerage firms will waive these transaction costs altogether. Furthermore, fees on mutual funds and ETFs are also minuscule if utilizing passive investment strategies. And there's global exposure. Out of the comfort of your home, you have the flexibility to choose from a whole host of investment products. You're not limited to a specific firm product type or investment strategy can even easily and cost effectively access investments globally. If you want to invest in Japanese or South African stocks or Latin American bonds, all this can be done with ease from your laptop. Liquidity. Unlike many markets around the world, the U.S. stock market is incredibly liquid. I can buy a stock in the morning and track it, its value throughout the day. I can also sell a stock and have my cash back in, the, in my account within a few business days. Many markets around the world are far less liquid, and this process is far more cumbersome. There's transparency. The U.S. stock market is the most transparent market in the world. Companies are required to disclose their financial information to the public and follow a set of accounting principles. When investing in a foreign country like China, the same transparency does not exist, and it's difficult for investors to get factual data upon which they can rely. There's regulation. Many financiers have a love-hate relationship with regulators. However, most financiers would agree that some level of regulation is imperative to the strength of our financial system. Regulation protects consumers and investors, ensures that the financial system remains stable, and continues to make funding available for investments that support the economy. Having just enough regulation helps investors sleep at night knowing their money is in a solvent system. And finally, there are tax-efficient ways to save and invest. There are countless ways for Americans to save and invest their hard-earned money tax-efficiently. When it comes to retirement savings, some options include IRAs, 401ks, 403bs, 457b, a profit-sharing plan, and cash balance plans. Additionally, folks can choose when they want to be taxed by utilizing either pre-tax or post-tax options, such as traditional or Roth retirement accounts. There are also tax-efficient ways to save for college, utilizing 529 college savings account and medical costs using a triple tax-free health savings account, or HSA. People like to complain about how retirement is unattainable and college is outrageously expensive. There are merits to those complaints. However, a benefit of living in America is with some effort and forethought, there are many wonderful planning opportunities that can help families get ahead financially. Most countries don't have the same optionality and flexibility. One thing I do every July 4th is share the biography of Haim Salman on my social media accounts. Solomon was born a Polish Jew who lived in Philadelphia and played a major role as financier of the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. The urban legend is that in honor of his pivotal contributions, the 13 stars representing the colonies on the back of the dollar bill were arranged in the shape of a Star of David. Whether that is true or not is the fact that Jews played a major role in this country from its birth until today. This is true across industries, not only the field of finance. It's also true that throughout history, the United States has been a land of both refuge and opportunity for people fleeing persecution and hardship in their country of origin. 
every year on July 4th, it's important to recognize how lucky we are to live in a country that offers its, offers its citizens so much privilege and opportunity. Okay, those are the talking points this week. As a reminder, you can be notified of all my recent articles, webinars, and all the work I put out by subscribing to my free monthly newsletter at shankmanwealth.com forward slash newsletter. Now for this week's quote, sticking with the theme of July 4th, this week's quote is from founding father Benjamin Franklin, who said, money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of its filling a vacuum, it makes one. It is satisfied one wants, it doubles and trebles that want another way. There's no denying that on some level, money makes things easier, but money for money's sake is a road to no end. Saving, creating, and building money to serve a goal is a good idea. Hoarding money just to have more of it leads to constant dissatisfaction. As I tell my clients frequently, money is not a tool. Money is a tool, not a scorecard. It should be used to enhance your life, the life of loved ones, and given to help people through charity. If your goal is just to create more of it, it will just lead to sadness and unfulfillment. But now let's jump into this week's financial questions. If you do have a question, feel free to submit it to me at jonathan at shankmanwealth.com, and it may be answered in a future episode. Okay, first question. Our child has disabilities. Any planning tips you recommend? So this is a type of planning that you should not try to figure out by yourself. It should spend money and hire an attorney that specializes in this area, ASAP. Failure to plan appropriately can cost you a lot of money and lots of heartache. With that thought, here are some things to keep in mind. One, get your child qualified for SSI, which is Supplemental Security Income, or SSDI, which is Social Security Disability Insurance. Or you can start with one and, and end up with the other. We'll give the child a cash flow. It's important to point out that these are poverty programs, so parents' income will count, so they need to coordinate when to apply on behalf of their child. An attorney can walk you through the specifics. Also, when working with your child's doctor to get qualified, it's important that they are focused on what the child can't do to help them qualify. Uh, two, get your estate plan right. Be mindful that your child can't hold money outright. Part of this estate planning will involve setting up special needs trusts, this will also include guardianship provisions. Three, Roth IRA conversions. This will allow you to get money into tax-free world so your disabled child can max out the tax benefits of the funds in these accounts by stretching it over their lifetime. Since a child is disabled, they have the ability to stretch this inherited Roth IRA and not have to pay tax on those dollars where with withdrawal from a traditional IRA that's inherited, they would have to pay those taxes. Four, take advantage of ABLE accounts. Think of ABLE accounts like you would a 529 account, but for disability. There's no tax deduction for putting in funds. However, the funds grow tax deferred and are not taxed on gains if used for disability expenses. Be mindful of the fact that since government disability programs have income limitations, the fact that this account grows tax-free is crucial. Also be mindful that you can move funds from a 529 account to an ABLE account, assuming the child becomes disabled. It's important to keep in mind the limitations, which is that the account can't be funded with more than $100,000. Additionally, each plan is sponsored by the state. So you go to your state to open the account, not your traditional brokerage firm. And finally, there is a state tax break, which is nice to have. Again, don't put this planning off and don't try to navigate it by yourself. The sooner you take action along with the proper guidance, the better. 
Next question, I received $3 million lump sum of cash net of taxes. Big picture, how should I allocate this cash? I still have a couple of decades or so until retirement, if that's relevant. It's hard to be specific without knowing any other details about your life or financial situation. First, you should probably hire a financial advisor to help you. Um, if you're the do-it-yourself type that just wants to posture around, here are some guidelines to increase the likelihood um, that you don't blow yourself up or make silly decisions. Since you already pay taxes on this money, this is how I would recommend allocating the remaining proceeds. One, 10% goes to charity. Two, pay off any debt you have. Three, at least 20% should go to savings and investings. Four, is invest in yourself if applicable. This may mean to help grow business or position you to make more money in the future in some way. Five, spend on yourself to enhance your life, like going on vacation as an example. In short, the big picture is you always want to give away some to charity, save for your future, invest in yourself to improve your long-term financial position, and spend on, on yourself to enjoy life. Now, in terms of investing the money, since you have a multi-decade time horizon, you want a heavy allocation equities, think around 80%, in order to outpace inflation. The remaining money should go primarily into high-quality fixed income, no alternative investment nonsense. You don't need that in your portfolio. Specific asset classes and how to get exposure we can discuss offline. Can I still collect Social Security if I worked in the U.S. but moved to Israel in retirement? Yes, no issues there. I know plenty of people that do that. Next question, who is an HSA the right fit for? An HSA or health savings account is good for high earners with a high deductible medical plan who can pay for any expenses out of pocket and let HSA funds grow triple tax-free to offset future medical costs as you get older. An HSA can be a powerful tool for healthcare costs in retirement. Also, if you keep the receipts for qualifying medical and healthcare expenses you incur while paying out of pocket, you can reimburse yourself later with tax-free withdrawals associated with those past expenses. Let me give you an example. Suppose in 2023, my family contributes $7,750 to an HSA. Throughout the year, we incur a variety of medical expenses, including doctor's visits, prescriptions, and over-the-counter medications. Maybe we even have an unexpected medical procedure along the way. Since we are investing $7,750 we contributed to our HSA, we pay all these expenses out of pocket, but we keep the receipts. Fast forward 30-ish years to when we are retired, because we diligently invested our annual HSA contributions, we now have more funds available than what's needed to cover the cost of healthcare and retirement. And because we've digitally stored our receipts, we can make we have those receipts so we can make tax withdrawals associated with our past healthcare expenses. And then, then use those funds for expenses of any kind, not just qualified healthcare costs. This is a pretty sweet deal, assuming you have a system for saving and organizing receipts from 30 years ago. Why own international stocks when the U.S. historically has outperformed on average? Investment returns rarely achieve average results, meaning the market may be up 15 to 20% or down 20% or do nothing for years. It rarely gets the 7 to 8% average returns. I say this because the next decade, we may see the U.S. market do nothing or experience a series of big down years, while the international markets have monster years. The point is, we just don't know what the future holds. And just because the past few decades show average returns higher for U.S. stocks doesn't mean you will personally experience those same averages. I know I should be diversified, yada, 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 but what's the best investment? 
The best investment is the one that you can stick with. Sure, you need to avoid direct that may appear to be an investment, but assuming you're invested in something normal, stocks, bonds, real estate, etc., then if you stick with it over the long term, you will make money. There are ways to help optimize your portfolio based on your goals and time horizon to potentially enhance your returns. However, the key is compounding, and if you stick with something for long enough where compounding can work its magic, you should be in good shape. I have two moms. They have done no financial planning. I'm trying to help them out. Any nuances I should be aware of. Two items come to mind. <clears throat> One, women tend to live longer than men. And two, some family members who don't approve of your mom's lifestyle may think they have a claim to their assets when they don't. The first nuance has a variety of planning and investing implications that arise when living longer, namely investing more aggressively to outpace inflation, delay claiming social security, and the need for long-term care planning. The second nuance means proper estate planning, so your mom's wishes can't be challenged. This means leaving assets to heirs via beneficiary or in a trust rather than through a will where it can be challenged. Even if the other family members will lose the challenge, the headache associated with this can easily be avoided with proper planning. Next question, I can't seem to get this investment thing right. I hope you could help. I originally was in a diversified portfolio, but moved to 100% technology stock since it was outperforming. Tech took a hit in 2022, so I moved to cash since the yields went up near 5%. But now tech went up a lot. I can never seem to catch the hot investment wave. How do I do that so I can earn attractive returns? The way to earn attractive returns is to stop doing what you're doing. Looking for the next hot thing won't work. You will end up like most people who follow this approach, which is chasing past performance, to only get wiped out later. No one could ever time the market or what will be the next hot thing. It's impossible. Instead, stick to a diversified portfolio that matches your goals, time horizon, and risk tolerance, and then stick with it through thick and thin. This will lead to building a meaningful amount of wealth over time. What you're currently doing will lead you to the poorhouse, so please stop doing it. I'm 35 and have an old 401k I never rolled over. Should I move funds to an IRA or liquidate the 401k and pay penalties and taxes and then invest these funds in real estate deal that will get me 25% per annum? I imagine that it makes sense since I can't get more than 14% per annum in 401k investment. Thanks. Okay, so there are so many problems with this question that it is literally giving me heart palpitations. First, yes, you should move the funds to an IRA. It's seamless, will keep you organized, allow you to avoid paying penalties and taxes. And you can then invest in a myriad of different opportunities. Second, why are you so certain that this real estate thing will allow you to achieve 25% annualized returns? The reality is you aren't sure. You got sold on this idea by some charlatan who convinced you of this unlikely scenario. Don't chase after the 25% theoretical returns. They likely won't materialize. Third, how did you arrive at 14% a year? <clears throat> In any investment, 14% a year consistently is extremely difficult to do. Um, so I'm not really sure how you got to that, um, but you seem to have pulled this number out of thin air. Fourth, it is possible to get higher than 14% in a particular year in a 401k if invested in equities. Fifth, you said the phrase per annum twice in your question, which leads me to believe that you work in finance. It's astonishing, but not surprising how clueless you are about investing in personal finance with that type of background. And that's kind of sad. Next question. Since you're a finance guy and probably part of the problem, I'll ask this question to you. How do we solve the inequality problem in the United States? 
So the issue with your question is that you seem to be a bit brainwashed. Let's take a few minutes to break down this topic. One, you're brainwashed. Only an ignoramus or fool blames someone they don't know and whose job function they clearly don't understand for causing income and wealth gap between the haves and have-nots. My job is to help people reach their financial goals through investing and financial planning. I'm an upstanding citizen, and my contribution to in income inequality is the same as a teacher, rabbi, or ditch digger. However, politicians score more points by vilifying certain industries. You bought into this lie. <clears throat> Two, is the gap between the rich and poor worse now than it has been historically? If so, what is the breakdown? I'm not denying that there is a gap, but without data to support your thesis that things are getting worse and not better, then there may not actually be a problem, and you should look into that. Three, there's no doubt that in America, the standard of living has increased dramatically for even the poorest people. This is very positive and seems to, let, to be left out of your question. The wealth gap may be wide, but no poor person would wish to live 100 years ago, even to be an upper class. For why is it proper to, that some people have money more than others? What's the alternative? Socialism? Why is that an issue? Visit China for a week and let me know if you want to live there. I've been there. You don't want to. Trust me. Five, the real issue is not wealth equality. There's no practical solution to that. The key is ensuring that there's upward social mobility in America. Someone that is born into poverty should be able to have the opportunity to get ahead in life and move into the middle or upper class. That social mobility has always been part of American life. It's the classic rags-to-riches story that so many people we all know have achieved. The real question is, can more be done to help out these poor people and these poor families to increase their likelihood of financial success? The answer is yes, but it really comes down to investing in education, not just through academia, but through trade school and creating a good social environment, like the Boys and Girls Club of America, for example. In short, the answer to improve social mobility in America and thereby increase the possibility of the poorest people earning more money is to improve education and invest in our children. This is America's responsibility, not just a select group of people. My dear questioner, the change starts with you, and you should get to it instead of blaming others. Okay, with that, that's a wrap for the questions this week. And again, feel free to reach out to me via email questions you may have, and I might answer it in a further uh, future episode. Uh, and with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Shankman on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.